Welcome to Thoughts on Thriving, a holistic lifestyle and wellness podcast that's here to help you become the healthiest, happiest, most aligned version of yourself. I'm your host, Ava, a registered dietitian in training and health and wellness junkie. I'm so excited to have you here as I dive deep into meaningful conversations covering topics from nutrition and mental health to spirituality and self-development and everything in between with experts in many fields. I'm so happy you're choosing to learn how to thrive today. Let's get into the show. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Thoughts on Thriving. I hope everyone is doing well today. I have on such a lovely guest for today's episode. We have Tara Kemp on the show. And Tara is a mental health coach and researcher. She is the founder of Reconnect Collective, which has programs and resources that help guide women through the inner work to help reconnect with food, their bodies, their minds, their their selves. And I've been following Tara for quite some time on social media. She has been in just kind of the health field and the mental health and wellness and vegan community on Instagram for a while. And she just does really amazing work to help women reconnect with themselves and with their relationships with food. And I wanted to have her on today to just talk about all these topics and talk about her eating disorder recovery, talk about how she took the steps to actually rebuild that relationship with herself when she was in that dark space. And so before I let you all listen to the episode, I do want to kind of point that out that you know, if anyone is triggered by that, this is a trigger warning for just eating disorder talk in this episode. Um, it's more in the beginning part of the episode, so you can listen to the rest. There's so much other good information. So, of course, we cover eating disorder recovery, how Tara recovered from an eating disorder while being vegan, and how that's kind of inspired the work she does now in her PhD, studying the effects of recovering while on a vegan diet. And We also talk about so many other things. We talk about how to heal a broken relationship with food and we talk about self-love and self-compassion, really doing the inner work. And we talk about why it's important not to identify yourself with any diet or lifestyle that you're eating or doing. Um, And we talk so much about kind of the work that she teaches and brings to people through Reconnect Collective, her group, and through her main course, Reconnect Academy. So if you're interested in joining Reconnect Academy, She kind of tells you how to do that in the end of the episode. We also talk a lot about nervous system regulation and she describes polyvagal theory, which was new for me. I wasn't like super familiar with it before. So this episode is super informative. She shares lots of tips and tricks and tools that you can take away and start doing right after this episode, which I love, you know, tangible takeaways. And we also talk about so many other things. This episode is chock full of information, wisdom, and just really sound advice. And I'm just so grateful I had the chance to talk to Tara and to have this conversation with her, bring these things to the forefront and to share it with you guys. So I hope you all like this episode. Let us know on Instagram if you did and share it with a friend that you think this might help. Share it on Instagram. Go give us a review or a rating or both. And I hope you all enjoy the episode, like I said. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Tara. Welcome, Tara. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks. Yeah, happy to be here. 
So to start off, I gave a little intro in the beginning of this podcast, but could you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and just sort of a bit on your educational background as well? Because I know you recently completed your PhD in psychosocial health, and I'd love to hear more about that as well. So also congratulations. Uh, That's (laughs) amazing. (laughs) Yeah, so I am a PhD. I do research and I'm also a mental health coach. And that's my primary work is the coaching side of things. I'm the founder of a group called Reconnect Collective, and we house programs and resources that guide women in doing the inner work to feel confident in food, body, and themselves. Um, So that's kind of the, the briefest overview Um, As you said, I do have my PhD. Um, It's technically still finishing up. So I don't want to say like I've graduated officially, but I have a PhD. I can technically say that. Um, And prior to that, my work was really in the nutrition field. I worked in the field of nutrition and lifestyle medicine for, man, I think it was like eight years And um, I did a lot of work in different areas within that. I would help to um, organize medical conferences. I helped to lead different community programs, teaching nutrition education to groups of people who were trying to um, take back their health or preventive medicine, different techniques there. Um, I did coaching um, in different capacities within those groups. I worked with Mastering Diabetes when they were just getting started. If anyone knows that program, I was their director of nutrition education. So I've been around the block in the nutrition and preventive medicine world. And, but from there, you know, I had always had this, um, just, I've always been a very feelings and emotion oriented person. And Um, I had my own history with disordered eating and just was starting to see these patterns come up in all these different groups that I was working with, all these different areas that I was working with, where it just felt like the relationship that people had to food with these underlying components and elements of the relationship that they have with themselves was not being addressed. And it was all being put on education and willpower and, oh, you just need a new strategy. Oh, you just need to try this new way of eating or try that new, you know, timeline or, you know, whatever it was. And I just felt like there was this bigger piece that I didn't see being addressed anywhere in the way that I saw and understood it. And so that was why I decided to go back to school to get the PhD. And prior to that, I had already been starting to do coaching on this myself, but it felt like something that I felt this um, not only pool to study, but also a responsibility to study because I didn't see anyone else asking the same questions that I was. And so um, I went back to school and that was uh, five years ago now. So yeah, and now I've been deep in it and I've since started um, Reconnect Collective and the signature program Reconnect Academy. And that work has been the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life. So and now we're here. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that's incredible. And I'd love to know a little more about like your dissertation and what you're specifically studying in your PhD. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that common to go back to school and get a PhD when you when you are in this world, you know, you could still be making a lot of money as a coach or as a dietitian or whatever. And so it's a very, I think, amazing thing to do and also unique mm-hmm. thing to do. So I'd love to hear about your experience with that. Yeah, you know, it's it's something that I 
I'm so grateful that I went into it in the timeline and perspective that I did in general, because I saw a lot of the people in my program struggling so much more with certain things than I was in regards to the workload or figuring out what they wanted to study or different things like that. Whereas I came in feeling very, I just feel like I had a very good relationship to it. Historically, I, you know, when I was in high school or undergrad, I put so much emphasis on making sure that I like got the grade and did did everything perfectly. And it was very much this like people pleaser, I need to prove myself type of tendency. And going back to school to get my PhD was very much like, I am already doing exactly what I want to do in the world. And so I don't need this. I'm not trying to prove anything. I've done enough inner work to not feel like this is like me. Um, yeah, trying to prove myself or like overcome some sort of insecurity or not enoughness about me. It was really just, I really care about this thing. And I feel very directed. I felt like I had a lot of clarity on like, this is what I'm here to study. This is what I'm here to do. And I, I think that having that that clarity of that goal and having the separation between that and the other pieces of my life and myself made it all such um, a much better process. So anyways, that's like my relationship to the PhD itself and going back to school. But my dissertation itself focuses on the influence that veganism has on a person's relationship with food, specifically within the context of recovery from disordered eating. So um, within the space of eating disorder recovery and treatment programs, it is pretty standard to um, require someone to abandon veganism while they're in treatment. And when I, five years ago, when I started my PhD program, I did not know of any programs, any treatment programs, I should say, um, that like had a policy where they did allow someone to be vegan. And um, in the past few years, we have seen that start to grow. So there are a number of recovery centers now that do allow it. But still, I would say that the norm or the typical experience of someone is that it's not allowed. And it's very interesting because vegetarianism is sometimes allowed. Like that is is much more frequently allowed. And then the veganism piece is just like a hard no in in most cases. And that's actually counter to the literature dating back to like 2007, 2008. So that's, that was interesting to me, but essentially that's the question that I'm asking. And it's been, um, so, I mean, I just love this stuff. I got to talk to people about their feelings for hours and like, that's my favorite thing. Um, I, I love hearing people's stories and trying to understand them and help them to understand themselves even more and then put words to those experiences like that's my favorite thing ever so I was like made to do this <laughs> but yeah it's been really interesting and enlightening and has helped my other work so much like this absolutely informs the rest of my my coaching work because <clears throat> while it was specific to the context of veganism in eating disorder recovery I also got to hear um, you know, dozens of people's recovery stories. And there were patterns in terms of what actually worked, like what ultimately facilitated them to recover and to be able to maintain and sustain recovery. And in a lot of cases, or in most cases, that wasn't what their treatment programs were providing to them. It was other factors. And 
which was like a really big and powerful finding, but also a really like sad and disheartening finding. Um, I feel like I knew going into it that I didn't agree with a lot of the aspects of our current treatment system um, within the medical model. But this definitely brought even more to light that was really heavy at times. Um, but ultimately, I feel really glad that that research has been done and that I am contributing in that way. And um, like I said, it definitely informs all of the work that I do. And thankfully, also, um, I feel like I'm not the only one asking these questions anymore. There are other people who are researching similar um, and tangential topics. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing. That is really interesting. And it's a really interesting question to ask. I mean, I'll share personally, I don't think I've ever talked about this explicitly on the podcast, but I also had an eating disorder years ago. It was like early in high school and it went on for like a couple of years. And the way that I found myself out of it was through veganism, actually. And I, I recovered fully through veganism and not only through that, it was through healing my relationship with myself, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about, mm -hmm. but that was the diet that I was eating. And I don't think that if I was in a treatment center, which fortunately I never like got to the place where I needed to go find that sort of recovery um, in a center, I don't think that it would have been allowed. And I think I would have had to go through some sort of struggle with, you know, the the way I wanted to eat and the way that I would have been told I needed to eat to recover. Mm -hmm. And it's so personal, I think, for so many people. Um, it's so different. Recovery can look so different for everyone. So I'd love to hear your story of kind of your past of disordered eating, eating disorder, and how you got to where you are today. Because I can just tell from observing you, you know, you're so connected to yourself, you're so embodied, and you've completely healed yourself. And I'd love to hear kind of that whole journey. Yeah, you know, it's... <sighs> I always have a hard time when people ask me this question. I've done a number of podcast interviews and it's one of those things where I feel like I could talk for three hours to really explain the whole journey, but I will try to do it in like five minutes and then you can expand on any parts. <laughs> um, so I am one of those people who the origin story of my disordered eating experience was not related to my body. Um, and so a lot of the things that I was being told in those early days, number one, I was largely, let me back up and say that I was largely, um, unaware and in denial of what was happening when it was first going on. So this was, um, the summer in between eighth grade and freshman year of high school for me. So between middle school and high school was when that first developed for me and, um, there was a lot going on at the time. And the the primary thing that um, at this point, I would say, is my understanding of this uh, development of the disorder was I had been a gymnast when I was younger. And when I say that, most people think that I'm going to talk about the body image piece. Um, but that wasn't really a big part of it for me. It was more so that um, being a gymnast was my life and my identity. I was so young when I started doing gymnastics that I don't even remember ever not doing it. I was like two when I was in my first like toddler class. And then from there on, I just was. And it was my, 
friend group, that was my life. That was what everything in my life was oriented around. And I started having these mental blocks around doing the skills. And, you know, now we have Simone Biles talking about things like that, which was amazing to see. Um, but that was my experience is that I, my, my, I did not feel like I had control over what my brain was doing or afraid of. And so I felt like a victim to my own mind and it got to the point where it wasn't safe. Like I was doing these like really intense skills and like freezing in the middle of something. And like, you can't do that when you're like flipping on a balance beam or like running down a runway at full speed towards this vault. Like you can't just have your brain freak out in the middle of that. And I didn't have the skills or tools to understand what was happening. And there was a lot of shame around that. And so at the same time where I was feeling all of this shame and confusion about why this was happening to me, I also lost my identity and my friend group and, and my gymnastics. Um, the place that I went was, you know, like far ish away from my house. Like none of my teammates went to my school um, or were in my grade if they were in the same um, school district. And so, yeah, it was just, it felt <clears throat> like all of a sudden my identity had been taken away at the same time that I was going through this like identity crisis of other sorts of not understanding why my brain was doing this. And um, I just felt really alone and confused and lost. And at the time I didn't necessarily know the words for that. Um, but that's when it all started. And looking back, it feels really uh, like obvious, like, oh, well, that makes sense. Like it feels really logical. <clears throat> I can look back and validate myself. Um, but from there, um, so yeah, that's all just to say that for me, it, it didn't come from body image. It came from a control piece and just feeling like I, there, here was this thing that I could control. Um, but from there, it then got very confusing and I started to feel very, just, just a whole mix of interesting emotions around feeling misunderstood because a lot of people would try to talk to me about my body and then put all this attention on my body and that felt really weird for me because I it's like in certain places I was being praised for my body being smaller and thinner and leaner because I ended up getting into dance and as a dancer that was really praised and I was on the track and cross country teams and it was really praised there so it was like there were places where it was like a good thing um and then there were places where I was being told, like, I was being shamed for it. Like, you're so smart. How could you do this? Like, I don't like it. And, um, and at the same time, like I said, I was largely unaware to it until it was brought to my attention and then trying to figure out similar to you, I never, um, entered into a treatment program. And I think that that could be positive and negative. I mean, it's my it's, it's how it happened for me. And so I don't have any strong feelings around it <laughs> being one way or the other. Um, but what I will say is that throughout the ups and downs of the next, I'd say five, four, four to five years of my life, um, before I feel like it, it really entered like full recovery. There were like quasi recovery seasons within that. Um, but I'd say that in the four or five years before it hit full recovery, I never found anyone 
in terms of a mentor or a clinician where I felt really actually understood. And I think that was the biggest issue for me is that I was being told all of these different suggestions or explanations for what was happening to me or methods of what I should be doing. And none of them resonated. None of them felt like that was what was actually happening to me or that was what I needed. Like, I think that ultimately I really just needed someone to like listen to me and help me figure out what I was actually feeling internally and then give me some tools to like regulate myself and not feel that way without using food as that thing. And I didn't get that anywhere and that's okay. You know, (laughs) nobody, everyone did their best, Um, but that's what I needed and that's what I didn't get. And so for me, the healing really happened um, in tandem to two things. Number one, for me, veganism was really healing because it gave food this meaning and purpose that was outside of myself. And it made everything make sense in a way that I had always felt this inclination towards already. Once I started paying more attention to food and nutrition and environmentalism and all these different pieces, like I'm a super highly sensitive, conscientious, intentional person. I'm, I don't do surface level things. Everything is really meaningful to me. Like I am just one of those people who is like in, in some cases, like super fun and deep to be around. In other cases, people are like, oh my gosh, like take it easy. (laughs) Um, But food was really meaningful to me. And so to have people try and say, stop, stop caring about these aspects of it didn't make sense, but I needed to find a way to have balance in which it was healthy for me rather than overthinking and having these fixations on it. And veganism really helped me to see clarity around here are the values that actually really matter to me. And that helps me to say these other things don't like if I don't have my preferences met in one way or another, but I'm still eating in align with alignment with my values in a way that feels authentic and true to me and meaningful. Awesome. Like I'm proud to stand up in this way and, you know, make compromises on these other pieces. Like it really helped me to heal that relationship with food in a way that was like, okay, this is all like, this is this beautiful, magical, amazing thing that actually creates harmony. Like I don't have to, you know, play I don't know if you ever played like the floor is lava, like hot lava where you're like, and I felt like for me for so many years, it was like, how do I avoid all these parts of food that feel bad to me and just find the pieces that feel good. And it was like with plant-based eating with veganism, it just became this feeling of like, oh, everything within this lifestyle feels good to me. Every part of this feels good to me. And there was just something so freeing and healing in feeling like food had this purpose and meaning and that I could be intentional about it. And that, um, yeah, it just, it just, it all lined up for me. Like every part of it just felt good to me. Um, and it honestly, I know that for a lot of people, it's not an easy switch, but for me, it was, um, it was a lot easier than I expected it to be. I was like, I'm going to try this for one month and see how it goes. And that in part was like a self-protective part of me that was like, I don't want to do something if it's going to make this relationship with food worse. 
and I don't want it to become restrictive. And I was very aware of that going into it, but it wasn't, it just kept feeling better and better. And the more that I learned, the more that I just felt so enlivened by it and healed. And so, yeah, now we're 11 years later and here I am. So that's that part of the story. And then the, the, the last part I'd say is that for me, veganism wasn't the final step. Um, I realized a few years into being vegan that there were still some pieces of me that going back to what I'd said in terms of the origin story, like I still had never had someone to help me navigate my anxiety, my OCD tendencies, like the parts of my brain that I didn't understand or have tools to work with, that was still there. And while I had this beautiful relationship with food that felt really good now and that, you know, was helpful in terms of my relationship with my body, with myself, with my identity, there were still pieces that were there. And for me, it didn't feel like it really came full circle, came to this like closure place. And of course, like, you know, we're always learning and growing, but to me, it didn't feel like I finally have this sense of true inner peace about who I am. And I'm not using food to like, as my coping mechanism or as my fallback when things get challenging, like I'm no longer using food in that way. That didn't really come with for me until I had done this inner work of looking at where am I holding shame? Where do I feel not enough or too much? Um, what are the things that I haven't allowed myself to really look at and process? What are the, like just doing all of that work. And I had a wonderful therapist at the time who was my first guide in that process. Um, and for me, that was, that was the point at which I was like, Oh, like now I don't feel this like compulsion to, restrict or to be like really anal about the exact ingredients of something or like it was like I had finally gotten to that point where those thoughts weren't coming up anymore or if they were I was able to notice and be like oh that's coming up probably because blankety blank blank is happening in my life let me use these other tools because what I really need is comfort what I really need is safety what I really need is to calm down my dysregulated nervous system. Like I didn't have that understanding of myself prior. And now that I did, I was no longer using food in that way. So anyways, that's my story. That was probably way longer than five minutes, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was so important. You know, it's important to get to know that whole full story of how you came to this place because it isn't just kind of a clear cut path. There's so many different parts, like you were saying, mm -hmm. and I could relate to your story so much in terms of my own story and my own experience. And you kind of described the way that veganism was so healing for you in a way that I couldn't articulate, but I feel the exact same way. Mm. Um, and I feel like the food piece does usually come first and you do kind of find that way of eating that feels really good and fun and exciting for you. And then the emotional stuff, or at least for me, also came after and that's mm. kind of like that final missing piece that I honestly didn't even know was missing for a while and then yeah. when I did I was like oh I, I wasn't fully healed like I mm -hmm. thought I was but I wasn't um 
So before we get into that whole emotional part of things and healing our relationships with ourselves and with food as a result, um, I want to know about like, you know, you said your whole identity was being a gymnast, was going to the gym, Mm -hmm. being a gymnast. And I find that that's really common in athletes, but I also find that that can be common in vegans as well. And Mm. whenever you attach yourself to a certain way of eating, and I find that I kind of had that attachment to being vegan for a while. And I've done a lot of inner work in the last couple of years to undo that because I never want my identity to be in anything outside of just me, my soul, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a way of eating, whether it's my grades or anything that we've talked about. So I'd love to know if you've had that experience if you ever put your identity into this lifestyle and had to do work around that or if it was always a really sort of detached thing from you yeah that's a great question and I think that identity work is so important to this whole process including in our relationship with food and for me I'd say that veganism at the very start there was this sense of like excitement and passion and I I felt very proud to make that part of my identity I think that I don't know if you'll if you'll relate to this but I think that because I have like my biggest pain points are around feeling misunderstood that was like a huge story in my childhood and early life and through like you know early adult life And, um, so I think that any time where I've had something that makes me feel really validated and understood, it has been a positive, like really positive and healing thing for me. And so even like in my freshman psych class in undergrad, like learning about the Myers-Briggs and feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm reading this description of this personality type. And it's telling me how I feel and who I am and how different things affect me. Like that was like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I make sense. Like it was like, I feel like I had always had this story of like, there's something wrong with me. I'm too much. I'm not enough. Like it was just like, I, that is not correct (laughs) the way that I am and operate. And so, um, having this thing that made so much sense to me was really healing, whether that was like Myers-Briggs or whatever. And I think that I feel I felt the same way when I first found veganism was like, oh, my gosh, like I make sense. Like, here is this ideology that I totally align with and that I agree with and that makes me feel normal and proud to have this label. Like, I think that it was something that was really positively powerful for me at the start, but I think that in time it's become something that feels really not important in terms of a label of who I am. Like I feel very distanced from it in terms of the label itself, but I feel super connected and integrated with the value system. And I think that that is where I have landed is that veganism feels so just part of who I am, but I don't feel a need. I I don't feel the same relationship to the label or identity of it. It's more so just like, because I am who I am, this is how I interact with food. And I 
don't know if I can fully describe that difference, if I really have the words for that at this point. Maybe someday I will. But I think that that's where I've landed with it. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting. I think that sometimes we need to go through different phases with things like that around identity. Speaking personally, there was something so healing for me when I first acknowledged I have anxiety. Like I live with anxiety. And to say that and be able to own it and not feel shame around it, be like, I have anxiety in the same way that when I first, like I was, I think 23 years old when I first admitted I struggled with food. I had disordered eating. Like <clears throat> there were a lot of things that I was very much trying to hide and deny from myself. And that was really powerful for me to remove the shame and be able to say, I have anxiety and it's just something that I deal with. Or I had an eating disorder and that's just part of my story. But then I think that for me, the next days of I the next phase of identity was actually saying, I don't have anxiety. I don't have to live with anxiety. That is like, I feel like there was this level of identity shifting where I actually expanded beyond that and said, everyone has tendencies that come out when they're not taking the best care of themselves. When I am not attending to my mental and emotional needs, I have anxious tendencies. That's what comes up for me. But when I'm taking care of myself and taking care of my needs and living in alignment with all of the things that I know to be true about myself, I actually don't live with anxiety. Today, I experience anxiety so infrequently. It's like not at all part of my daily life. And, and so for me, that was a shift. And I feel like the same thing has happened with veganism, where it was like, there are different stages of relating to it. And each of them are powerful and positive in their own way. But I think that at a certain point, I outgrew them. And that's not to say that I feel like that's making me better than someone who feels really positive about their identity with veganism. Just like for me, for me personally, in my uniqueness, in my truth, it led me to a slightly different relationship with it that feels even more true and healthy for me. Yeah, I can relate to that so much. I think that that first stage of acceptance is really important with anything, like you said, because if we don't name it, it's kind of like we're denying it our whole lives. So mm -hmm. whether it was with your anxiety or with your relationship with food and like admitting that you had a struggle, you can't really work on any of it and do the inner work that we're about to talk about without identifying it first. So I do think that identifying with it and identifying it in general is necessary. But then once you get deeper down the path, I think it's important to like detach and to live in a place of like knowing that your worth is inherent and not from these other things. Like I'm not worthy because I'm vegan or right. because I have an amazing relationship with food now. So I like that distinguishment that you that you made. And, you know, now getting into the whole emotional regulation side of things and healing side of things, you know, you you talk a lot about how it's not the food itself. It's not what you're eating. It's about mm -hmm. your relationship to whatever you're eating. So if someone, you know, it doesn't matter if they're vegan, if they're vegetarian, if they're a carnivore, like whatever they eat, 
really it all comes down to how you relate to it and how you relate to yourself, which I think, you know, they play a part in each other and they affect Mm -hmm. one another. Um, They're not mutually exclusive. So I think all of that requires you to be at some level in tune with your body and with yourself in some way. And I think that so many people are disconnected. I was disconnected for so long from my body and from myself. So how do we reconnect with ourselves? I know that's like a big question and it seems like such a gargantuan task sometimes to kind of reconnect when we've we've been so disconnected and we use things to numb as well, whether it's, you know, social media or food or, you know, drugs and alcohol, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So how do we start taking the steps to find ourselves again? So really quickly before Tara tells us how we can start to reconnect with ourselves, I just wanted to share with you all this little challenge that I'm going to be doing to help reconnect to myself and become the best version of myself during the month of October. So we've talked about Magic Mind before on this podcast. I love Magic Mind so much. They're the world's first productivity drink. I take Magic Mind before I do my schoolwork, before studying, before going to work. So it really has changed my life. And I'm so excited that they're doing the hashtag 14 days of magic challenge. And I'm so excited to join them. And I wanted to let you all know about it so that you can join me as well. So the purpose of the challenge is essentially to challenge yourself to be your best self for 14 days while also saving the Amazon rainforest, which is super cool. The Amazon rainforest is responsible for producing more than 20% of our oxygen, so Magic Mind wants to help with the reforestation of one of the Brazilian sectors. So for every 10,000 views the hashtag 14 days of magic gets on social media, they'll donate $10 and their goal is to reach $30,000 to donate to the rainforest and just make a bigger impact. And I'll be joining the challenge or starting the challenge on October 12th. And I'd love for you all to join me. So we're going to do a little contest with Magic Mind. And all you all have to do is create content around the challenge, purchase your own pack of Magic Mind. We have a discount code for you all. It's thriving 14 for 20% off, T-H-R-I-V-I-N-G-1-4 for 20% off. So grab your pack of Magic Mind with me. We're going to have it every day for 14 days and see how our productivity and just moods change. And then if you want to enter the contest, you can create content around the challenge. Things about you being productive and living your best life. It can be an Instagram story, a TikTok, YouTube, anything on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube. You just have to add the hashtag 14 days of magic and then submit the content through this link that I'll share when I do my first day on October 12th. And then after that, I will pick a winner on November 30th and the winner gets a $300 valued subscription to Magic Mind, which is crazy. And like I said, this little shot that you take in the morning will change your life. It'll make you so productive and it helps me focus so much. So I would really, really love for you all to join me on this challenge. I think with summer over and fall starting, it's a really great time to kind of just set goals for ourselves and reset and become the best version of ourselves. And I can't wait for you all to join me. So make sure to grab a pack of Magic Mind before the next episode so you can start the challenge with me. You can go to magicmind.co to get your box today. And let me know over on Instagram if you are joining me on this challenge. I'm super excited and can't wait to see everyone's posts and to pick a winner because this prize is incredible, you guys. So I'll let Tara explain how we can reconnect with ourselves and we can use her advice on this challenge to reconnect, 
show up as our best selves and be super productive in these 14 days? Yeah, you're right that that is a big question and it's a big process. But the thing that I would say that I would most recommend or that I think, um, you know, if you were to develop, like if you were to focus on like one thing, I would say that is the combination of compassion and curiosity. If you have radical compassion for yourself, to me, what that means is that anything that you find within yourself is safe with you. You are not going to judge or shame yourself for whatever comes up. So if you're looking back at your past experiences for myself, for example, I look back, you know, being in mental illness makes you selfish in a lot of ways. And I said and did things and behaved in certain ways when I was in the disorder that I am not at all proud of. And when I didn't have the compassion to look at those things and say, oh, like I was hurting. I understand where that came from. That's not okay, but I forgive myself. You know, I'm I'm not proud of those moments. I'm not saying like, oh, that was totally fine for me to, you know, lie or do whatever thing that I was doing. But at the same time, I have compassion for it. And so that means that it's safe with me. I've created a space of safety for me to look at literally any part of myself. And if I have the capacity to have compassion for literally any part of myself, then I can be fully honest. You cannot do the inner work unless you're fully honest with yourself. So that's piece number one. And piece number two is having that curiosity to ask the questions, to say, why is this coming up for me right now? Why is this hard for me? Why is this challenging? Why did I feel defensive in that moment back there? Why did I snap at this person? Why why did this come up? Just whatever that is, like having that curiosity. And then again, within that curiosity, meeting whatever you find, whatever your truth is, meeting all of it with compassion. And I'd say that's that's the key. And that's the the foundational first start of where I would recommend for someone. No, those are great tips. And I think that just asking those questions will start to get, even if it's not something you're doing every day, just kind of breaking the habit of like Joe Dispenza says, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but oh, I love no, Joe Dispenza. Same. He's the, the best. If you guys don't know Joe, Dr. <laughs> Joe Dispenza, definitely check his workout. I talk about mm-hmm. him a lot, but you know, you start to break the habit of being yourself, like he says. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, super important when you're on this journey is to start breaking kind of those old patterns and those old beliefs and those old systems that were put in place that got you to this place. And I think that another thing that happens when we're not connected with ourselves, something that I find a lot when I've been working with patients and things is a lot of overeating and emotional eating starts to happen and people start to feel a lot of shame and guilt from that. And then it becomes this vicious cycle. So in your experience, I know, you know, you work with people on this. Why do Mm -hmm. people overeat? in your opinion, and like often resort to food to fix, quote unquote, their emotional stuff. And what are some ways we can break that cycle if you have any tips or tools? Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, I think at the start, in part, when I was telling my story, food is a really easy way of coping. Um, It's something that, you know, we all have coping mechanisms, like even healthy people have coping mechanisms. And 
we are not, you know, our society, I think that this is like slowly changing. Hallelujah. But for most of us that are at the age of listening to this podcast, we weren't taught. This is what it feels like to feel uncomfortable in your emotions or uncomfortable in your body with your physical sensations, with uh, your mental experience. Like we weren't taught you might have these sensations, you might have these thoughts or feelings or, you know, et cetera. And here's some tools to help you feel calm and safe and regulated when those come up. We weren't, we weren't taught either side of that equation. And so naturally we're going to come up with other ways to soothe ourselves, to calm down, to feel put at ease. And food is just something that happens to be an easy way to do that. We get a dopamine response in in both directions with food. You get a dopamine response when you eat that comfort food. Um, when you when you eat that thing that you've been craving or fixating on or you know whatever it is. We also get that hit of dopamine when we restrict because it's like, oh, I was I was good. Like I I did it. Um, and so it's it's this convoluted thing where we can get that hit either way, but it is soothing. So there's, there's that piece. And then there's also food can be a way to distract and numb those emotions as well. And those sensations. So if you overstuff yourself, you don't feel your emotional pain because you feel the physical pain of being overstuffed. Um, or you just aren't thinking about it. It's like, Oh, now I'm focusing on this. I'm getting this hit of pleasure. I'm, I'm having this happy experience and this will allow me to not be in that pain or in that discomfort, at least for the 10 minutes that I'm eating this meal. And it is so painful to be in that discomfort that we will literally do that. And then it becomes a pattern. It becomes a habit. And then even though someone doesn't want to do it, they just have this like inclination. It's like, it's kind of like a, com an, a like in OCD, like a compulsion, like you have that compulsion and you just have to do it or else you won't be able to settle inside. And so that's where a lot of that comes from. And, and I really, you know, encourage people to have that compassion for themselves because in most cases you weren't taught that. And, and that comes from both sides. Like number one, we weren't taught how to notice and pay attention to our emotions, to our physical sensations. Like there is such a disconnection and dissociation from the body. Like we don't want to be in our bodies, most, a lot of people. Um, and that is both in the sense of feeling that emotional discomfort, but also physically, especially as women, we, most of us were inherently taught not to trust what our bodies were telling us. If it says slow down, no, we have to keep going. We have to keep up. I mean, being in sports, it was like, you fight through an injury. You know, my sister was a D1 athlete. She took ibuprofen for days. Like, it was like, you just, you fight through it. You put on a brace, you go. Like, you get the surgery. You wait as short period as possible before you get back on the track or back on the whatever. And then you do it. Like, there was this sense of like, don't listen to the signals that your body is telling you, like push through the pain, push through the, the tiredness, whatever it is. 
And then also, you know, don't trust your hunger cues. Like hunger is something to be afraid of. Hunger is something to, like hunger is bad. Like don't be hungry. You know, whatever it was, there, there are tons of ways that we've been taught to dissociate from our bodies and to disconnect and override the cues that we're being given. Those are just a few examples. But I think that that's a lot of why that overeating and binge eating happens is a combination of those factors. It's so true. As women, we have been taught to kind of disconnect from our bodies. And so rather than learning how to connect, it's kind of like you were saying, it's like an unlearning of all these things that we've been taught as well. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot of work. I know you talk a lot about that in Reconnect Academy as well. So I definitely want you to share with everyone how they can, you know, kind of work with you on that. And we'll, we'll get to that in the end of the episode. But a question I have for you now that just popped up is like when you were in that place with food, with your mental health, with everything, like now knowing what you know and where you're at, what's something you wish you knew? And if someone is listening and they're in that dark place right now, like what is a piece of advice, something, just a message that your younger self needed to hear then? Because I know my younger self needed to hear a lot of things back then that I wish I could go and tell her, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah. You know, I think the biggest pieces are compassion and understanding. Like I just really needed someone to say, it's okay. Like the way that you're feeling makes sense. You know, I think that someone just needed to like validate that experience because until I was validated, there wasn't really a way forward because any advice that I was being given didn't resonate. And it was just like, that doesn't feel true for me. That doesn't feel right. Like I didn't want to not care about food. Like I wanted to care about it, but in a way that was healthy and nourishing and not stressful and overwhelming and shrinking my life. Um, And I really needed someone to hold space for my feelings and to help me understand how to hold space for my own feelings. I think that the biggest thing that I needed, um, yeah, was, was just someone to say like, you make sense, here's why. Like, here's why you make sense. And also explain to me, here's what's happening in your body. Um, Even in the past few years, learning more about our nervous system and understanding that like, oh my God, like our nervous system is the root of everything. And like, yes, our emotional experience is valid and true and real and so important, but literally at the level of like our biology, just like our nervous system's response to the world around us is creating so much of our inner experience and understanding that yes, like Things like talking through um, your feelings and emotions and getting support in like a traditional like therapy setting is super helpful and like journaling and um, meditation and, you know, things that help you to like sit through it and be with yourself, super helpful. But also somatic practices that work at the level of the body, like honestly, probably even more important as a foundational thing, like really understanding what it feels like in your unique body to be dysregulated and to be able to understand, oh, like what state is my nervous system in? Am I in sympathetic? Am I in dorsal vagal? Like what's happening? Oh, this is why I feel this way. Okay. Understanding that what does my body need? Like what does my body need for me in order to feel safe, in order to mobilize back into that ventral vagal state? 
And had I been equipped with those tools, I feel like I would have been such a better caretaker to myself. I would have had the lens and the context to understand what was happening and what I actually needed, because I felt really in the dark about that a lot of the time. I was doing my freaking best, but it wasn't enough because I didn't have the information that I have now. And I didn't understand what I understand now. So I think that was the biggest piece is number one, I would just need someone to say like, hey, it's okay, you make sense. And then number two, help me to understand what was actually happening inside my body when I felt all the things that I felt just by being human in this world. They're all really normal. <laughs> no one tells us how to do it. Right, exactly. And I think you bring up a great point with nervous system regulation. It's not talked about enough. It's like you can be doing all the right things on the physical plane, but then inside, like if your nervous system isn't regulated, like you like you said, none of it matters. And so I'd love to know, you kind of talked, touched on dorsal vagal. And um, I know in another podcast, you kind of went, through polyvagal theory and what that means. And I'd love to just kind of get a little summary of how we can regulate our nervous systems and maybe a little bit about polyvagal theory. I think it's fascinating. And just some of the tools, some of the somatic tools you you described, because I think that would be really helpful to listeners. Yeah, totally. So <clears throat> the briefest explanation that I will try to give, I'm not very good at super brief things, but I'll do my best. The briefest explanation of polyvagal theory that um, I'll give is essentially our nervous system. I feel like when we were in high school, at least for myself, I was taught there's two different things. There's fight or flight mode and rest and digest mode. And so when you're stressed, you're in fight or flight. And then when you calm down, you're in rest and digest. And we were taught that in terms of like, like extreme situations of stress. And then I feel like as you get older, you hear that common trope of like, you know, we're like our stress system was meant to be turned on for short periods of time. Like when we're being chased by a cheetah on the savanna and then, you know, or chased by a lion or whatever it is. But like, you know, in our daily life, uh, there's more than, you know, it's not like, oh, there's a lion. I got away. Like now I'm back to rest and digest. It's not like the sympathetic nervous system was made for those short bursts of stress to like get us to help us survive and get through those stressful moments. And now we live in a world where we are, have stressors every single day, all the time, just by like looking at our bank accounts or like sitting in traffic. And so then, you know, our sympathetic nervous system is turned on a lot longer. So those were the pieces that I knew prior to um, polyvagal theory. And those, those pieces are all true. Well, the second piece is true. The first piece is incomplete. There's actually a third, uh, state nervous system state that is not as talked about. And that's dorsal vagal and dorsal vagal is kind of like the unhealthy version of our rest and digest system where the body knows that it's not meant to be in sympathetic all the time. And so your, your dorsal vagal is kind of like the freeze. It's like the extreme of being rested. It's like, let's shut everything down except for the most basic needed things. Like we will survive in like a hibernation state. And so, whereas sympathetic is more kind of like the anxious energy, 
dorsal vagal is depressive energy. So dorsal vagal can happen, can be brought on in basically two primary ways. Obviously, all of this is way more complicated than how I'm explaining, but two primary ways. Number one, you've been in sympathetic long-term and your body's like, we can't keep doing this. Like we can't keep operating in this like hyper arousal, turn everything on at the highest level state. Like we need to shut things down because clearly we are in danger. Like your nervous system does not have logic to apply to anything that it's feeling. It is literally like your neuroception. So that's like the perception of your nervous system is saying this environment, like we are feeling stressed all the time. And if we are feeling stressed all the time, this must be an ever present danger. We are threatened. And so we need to power down and just survive until we get out of this threat. And so that's when your body shuts down you. It's very hard. So that's the more depressive state. It's very hard to feel connected to things. It's very hard to have an open mind about things like your brain thinks differently. Your body is shutting down a lot of its different like digestive processes. And um, there's, there's all these pieces that just your body shuts down and just says, okay, we're going to keep the heart pumping. We're going to keep the lungs breathing. We're going to keep getting up and doing the things that have to be done but we're not going to feel connected to any of it. Um, we're just going to go through the motions. And so that's that dorsal vagal state. And you'll often feel, it'll feel difficult. Like that's when the brain fog comes in. It's hard to like vocalize the things that you want to say. There's so much that goes on in that state. So anyways, dorsal vagal can come from just extended sympathetic and the body's like, we can't, like this is clearly a present threat. We can't just keep mobilizing for something that is going to be here forever or all the time. Um, and then the second way is extreme trauma. So if someone experiences big T trauma, um, that can trigger a dorsal vagal response. Um, and then when that trauma, even if, you know, someone is living with like a history of that trauma and they feel like they're fine in everyday life. And then something comes up that their body sees as like, oh, this, this is that same situation happening again. Um, because it remembers it. So even if it's not, it's like someone, you know, on the street just said something to you or like your partner did something or said something. And just the way that your body interprets the reaction to it is like, oh, this is happening again. And so that's when that dorsal vagal can happen again. When you're in sympathetic, you regulate back to ventral vagal, which is like our calm, connected, um, open-minded, state that we want to stay in the majority of the time that we want that to be our home base when you're in sympathetic which is one step down the ladder you mobilize back up to ventral vagal when you're in dorsal vagal which is two steps down the ladder so it's like dorsal vagal at the bottom then sympathetic then ventral in order to move out of dorsal vagal you do not just go straight up to ventral you have to mobilize through sympathetic and so you have to do something that's going to be more stimulating to get you into that like more aroused state. And then you can go into ventral vagal. Things that are particularly regulating for the nervous system, um, speaking firstly from going from sympathetic to uh, ventral, from that like typical stress state into um, that calm, connected home base are... There are a number of um, 
stretches that or or different um, practices that help to activate the vagus nerve. So there are different like places in your body where you can activate it. You can like do these little like ear massages or you can like do these neck the neck stretches. I swear are game changers. Literally just in one minute, you can like feel your whole body feels so much more relaxed. It's insane. Um, so there's different tools like that where you're literally just working with those pieces of the body. Um, things like tapping, um, which work with your energy meridians, similar to the science of acupuncture, like that is so helpful. Um, breathing exercises, so breath work, um, when you have a longer exhale than inhale, um, you can do more intensive breath work exercises like the Wim Hof method, or you can do just like alternate nostril breathing, things like that. Those work a little bit more slowly, but they also help to regulate the nervous system. Those are some pieces. Um, I know it's like all the rage to do like the, the cold dunks these days and the, the polar plunges, but like they really do help. They regulate the nervous system um, and they give your brain a, a boost of healthy hormones as well. So those are awesome. So those are a few things. There's a number of others. Um, and then getting from the dorsal vagal up to sympathetic, um, things like moving your body, like going out for a walk. I find, uh, taking a shower to be really helpful. Even just, you know, a hot shower doing like the hot, cold contrast can be good. Um, the cold plunge is also good for dorsal vagal to sympathetic. Cause it like kind of is like a shock to your system. Um, but things like that, that like get you feeling that get you moving, that get you active, that kind of flip what you're feeling on its head. You know, it's similar to, um, you know, when someone feels more, they tend toward anxiety, they're balancing practices. It's kind of like that yin and yang. They're balancing practices for, for their nervous system or for their mental health will be things that are more gentle, more calming. Um, whereas someone who tends toward depression, things like exercise things like that get them moving things that are more mobilizing are going to help balance that out more so um those are just ways to understand and you know you can notice in your nervous system when you're feeling a certain way like you if you're having a conversation with a partner or with your boss at work or you hear something or read something that all of a sudden you notice like i feel myself shrinking. I feel small. I feel constricted. I feel frozen. I feel like I can't generate the words. You know, you can notice how you feel, or you can say like, oh my gosh, like I feel jittery. I feel, oh, and that's another one. Shaking, super helpful. Shaking, so great as a nervous system um, regulator. Anyways, um, but having that body awareness and sometimes it's happening even when your brain is not necessarily like freaking out and going and spinning and going in circles. You know, your brain might not be telling you that things are happening internally, but if you're paying attention to your body, you'll notice that they are. And that um, is just so key. So anyways, that's my brief overview. <laughs> that was super informative. And I, I mean, I just learned a lot and I'm sure everyone listening will really appreciate that. I think even just the little things, like you said, the shaking, the tapping, like these are little things we can integrate into our daily lives so easily if we know about them. And mm -hmm. I know you post different things on Instagram, some free tools and stuff. Like I saw you posted a reel with the 
the neck stretching and then I tried it after I watched it I was like oh my gosh like this is actually so easy and it really helps so I'm a big fan of that one as well and I think that just finding more tools to just integrate into our daily lives instead of making it a whole like you don't have to spend an hour doing like this whole meditation and then doing like it doesn't have to be I mean meditation is great don't get me wrong and I oh yeah love that proponent (laughs) yeah but if you don't have time for all these things that people are telling you you need to do like these are really simple tools and they don't take that long so I love I love kind of the ease that comes with them and I think that they're super effective so thank you for sharing that and Mm. you know before we wrap up could you just tell us a little bit about reconnect collective and reconnect academy I know it's launching soon for another you know cohort to join you know if if anyone had their interest piqued by this conversation or is just loving what Tara is about which I know so many of you probably are how can they work with you and join Yeah. So Reconnect Academy is our signature coaching program. It's a 12-week intimate and intensive program that guides women through the process of learning the tools of the inner work, understanding themselves so that they can feel confident with food, with their body, and with themselves um, through through all of that. So the next round opens um, October. I'd have to look at a calendar. I think it's like 13th or 14th. Um, is when enrollment will open next. And um, this program, there are five steps to the reconnect method. And we start by, um, the first step is called um, recognizing the roots. And we start there because before you can move forward, I know that I disagree with Joe Dispenza a little bit on this. He's very much like, you don't have to work with the past, like just focus on the future. Just And that is amazing and beautiful. And we do integrate things like visualization into the work of Reconnect Academy, but I really believe in the power of self-understanding and in that compassion piece. So we start with that piece of understanding what has led you to the place that you're at right now, understanding what are the patterns, what are the experiences, what are my habits in terms of, you know, thoughts or habits, emotions or habits, what are those pieces that have led me to be exactly where I am today? Why have these other times that I've been trying things not been working. I think that there is so much healing in simply understanding yourself. And also that creates the path forward because the places where you are still triggered or challenged or struggling, those are the places where you have work to do and where you need your own love and healing and support. And so that understanding kind of builds the roadmap moving forward. The second step of Reconnect Academy is called rewriting your story. And that's where you get clarity on the truth of who you actually are, where you want to go, um, what your values are, what the character, like having that really deep understanding of like, this is who I actually am when I remove all of those limiting beliefs and stories. And we integrate, like I said, visualization and other pieces. You get really connected to all of your different parts. We do parts work um, similar to family systems work. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's the second section. And from there, reconnecting with your body, starting at the level of the nervous system, moving through all the way up to, um, I'd say like the most top level, I was going to shallow is not the word that I'm looking for, but like top level version of how you view your body image and whether you objectify yourself in those pieces, but everything in between of listening to your body, having that, 
uh, integrated relationship with your body where you are working together as a team and you understand each other and you're each supporting each other. You're working for it. It's working for you, et cetera. Um, moving there to reconnecting with food. Most people are really surprised that in a program that's focused about food, we don't get into food until we're eight weeks into the course, but that's because all this other work is the foundation and people are usually so surprised and elated to find that when they get to that fourth step of the course, food feels so much lighter and easier to navigate. Um, this program doesn't teach a meal plan or an exercise plan. We're not here to tell you what to do. We're here, you, here to help guide you in finding those answers for yourself. What does a healthy relationship with food look like for you based on those things that we built in the second section of the course in terms of knowing your values, knowing the lifestyle that you want to have, knowing what's most important to you? How can you use food to support you in being that version of yourself. And um, we write, we have each person write their own food manifesto. And the point of this all is that when you know who you are, when you know your values, when you know who you want to be and how you want to show up in the world, and you've built the systems into place to support you in doing that, food happens naturally. It's a, It becomes an easy and effortless extension of who you are and what matters to you. And especially when you've removed all of those other pieces of limiting beliefs and past patterns and stories and subconscious workings that have been holding you back. So it's like you remove the subconscious and limiting beliefs and pieces there. You have a full understanding of who you are. You build in the lifestyle practices and habits that enable you to live as that person. You connect with your body so that you can listen to its cues and be in communication with it. And then food just flows. It really does. Um, and then the final step of the course is reconnecting with yourself. And that just kind of is giving you some final tools to stay in connection with yourself. I mean, we want this 12-week course to be a primer for people to be able to take and use for the rest of their lives. We don't want it to be something that they have to keep coming back for more, that they have to do the 2.0 and then the 3.0 and then the 4. It's like, no, like with this program, we want you to be set for life. And so we do go into in the, that final section, some more um, intense, I'd say, um, practices for the the harder moments of life to navigate those so that you don't fall back into those old habits, um, but also kind of just like integrate it all and, and put everything into this like beautiful final piece of like, okay, I have this full integrated understanding of how these different parts all work together and how I can use them to support me in being the person that I want to be for my life. So yeah, that's Reconnect Academy. It's really wonderful and amazing. And doing it, I mean, most people, I shouldn't say most, a lot of people will say that the most healing part of the program, as much as obviously they get a lot from learning the lessons and the educational piece of it, but doing it in a community of women where they feel heard, where they feel connected, where they don't feel alone, where they get to share vulnerably, but also support other people. Like just having those connections is so healing in itself. And these things are so normal. Like the sad thing is that the things that we feel most alone in are probably the things that are like, make us the most human. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough to like do this for my job and therefore run in circles of people where we have these types of conversations on a regular basis, but most people don't. Most people aren't talking about the insecurities or the things that they struggle with or, you know, different re like relational questions about like what happens when I feel this way or how do I set these healthy boundaries and is this okay? And 
you know, just all these different pieces, we don't talk about them in our society enough. So I think that that piece alone is, is so key and important. And um, yeah, and there's all sorts of different support systems built in it with like large group calls, small group calls, individual coaching, the whole shebang. Um, I care so much and I'm just very committed to making sure that everyone comes out of this having a deep and powerful, big inner transformation. So yeah, that's Reconnect Academy. It's the most amazing thing ever. I love it. Wow. Well, I love it. I, just like hearing you speak about it and the passion come through your voice, like you can tell you really mm. care and that you're really putting the health and the happiness and the just embodiment of all these people, you know, as your priority. And I think that anyone who joins would is going to be very like pleasantly surprised um, by the results. And I know that, you know, we had Amanda Sevilla on the podcast. A few mm, awesome. Ago. Yes. Amanda is yes. amazing. She is our resident dietitian and yes. a coach within the program as well. Yeah. So if you want to work with Tara and with Amanda, definitely join. I think this is like such Come a power join us. Duo. It's the best time ever. <laughs> yes. And before you go and tell everyone where to find you on social media and everything, do you have time for five rapid fires that I ask everyone? Sure. Let's do it. Let's go. Perfect. Okay. First one is what's your favorite fruit? Uh, it's a hard one. <laughs> it is. I was just going to preface this by saying that I have a hard time with rapid fires, especially when they're like questions <laughs> about favorites. Um, I'm going to say fresh mulberries. Ooh, no one's ever said that before. I love it. Yeah, they're not very common, but I live <laughs> no. in Santa Monica well, so I got to try all sorts of crazy fruits and right. fresh mulberries are something so special. Ugh, they're yeah. so special and so good. <laughs> What's your sun sign? Uh, Aries. Ooh, my sister's an Aries. And do you know your human design? This isn't one of the rapid fires, but I'm curious. You know, human design is something that I've been wanting to get more into. Amanda told me what mine was and I'm forgetting. I think, <laughs> I, I think that I'm a generator. Okay. That would make that sense. Make sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would make a lot <laughs> of sense. Now that you know pieces about me. Yeah. It- yeah. Okay. Cause you're like an aligned generator. So you're just kind of like what you're doing you're following what lights you up and that's kind of bringing this joyous energy out and emanating to other people, which I mean, just from your energy, you can tell that you're very aligned. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is one book that changed your life that you'd recommend to everyone? Oh, so many books. Um, Based on the context of this conversation that we had today, I'm going to go with the book Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. Uh, that is the book that I read when I was at my lowest. We didn't quite go into this, but when I was first um, diving into the inner work and being honest about the parts of myself that I'd been hiding and that I felt very shameful about for a long time, that was the, for sure, the darkest period of my life thus far. And um I didn't yet have the tools to like forgive, but I was starting to be honest. And so there was just a lot of shame and like questioning and the book Radical Acceptance, like I credit so much of um, me getting through that really hard time to that book, as well as my amazing therapist. Having a guide in the process, like all of this, you know, inner work stuff you can do on your own. You can find books and tools and whatever, but having a guide to like hold your hand and sit with you and help you process and integrate things is like totally priceless. Um, 
So anyways, yeah, I attribute the book Radical Acceptance plus my therapist at the time to helping me become who I am today in a lot of ways. I totally agree. Like, it's so helpful to have someone kind of guide you through it, um, but not necessary, like you said. And it could be really helpful to do it in community with others, like in Totally. Yeah. That was a missing piece for me at, in the early days, for sure. Totally. Um, what is one habit or ritual you do every day that's a non-negotiable for you? Meditation. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that is my grounding piece. And I think that part of that is, I think it's multiple things. Um, I think for me, it just symbolizes like me taking care of myself and prioritizing myself. I think that also um, with the history that I have with like one of my earliest pain points being that I felt like a victim to my own brain, it's so healing for me to be like, I can sit here, just me and my brain and we're good. Like we're so safe together, whatever it comes up with, I can hold and like we're here together and it's all good like that's really healing for me um and then I think also from the point of the breathing piece it just it is regulating for my nervous system and starting my day in that space of calmness um is also helpful so I think that those three pieces are why it's so important to me totally I completely agree um Last but not least, the show is called Thoughts on Thriving. So I would love to know what your thoughts on thriving are. So, you know, what do you think the key to thriving is in this life? Mm, That's good. I should have guessed that that type of question was going to (laughs) come. What do I think is a key to thriving? I think that a key to thriving. This is not going to be a surprise to anyone who's listened to this episode, though. (laughs) is knowing oneself and building your life in accordance and as an extension of the things that are most of highest value and most meaning to you what what fulfillment looks like to everyone is different and that path is not necessarily easy or simple but i believe that that is when we thrive the most is when we are living in alignment with our truth I love it. Such a good answer and a good kind of full circle moment at the end of the conversation with everything we've talked about. Thank you so much, Tara, for coming Mm. on and for sharing your wisdom with us. Um, Before you go, where can everyone find you? Where can everyone, you know, follow you on social media and join Reconnect Academy if they want to? Yes. So on social media, um, I'm most active on Instagram and now TikTok. I've been starting the TikTok life. So that's been fun please come join me over there. Um, And then Reconnect Academy. Uh, The website is reconnectcollective.com. And then you just go to the Academy page um, or reconnectcollective.com slash Academy. And that's where you find all of that info. And and we're having a major website we revamp right now. So that'll be fun too. Um, But yeah, those are the places to find me. And and if anyone has any questions about Reconnect Academy itself, my emails on my website or they can shoot me a DM anywhere. And um, I'm happy to chat about things and talk through it. I know it's a big decision. Perfect. Thank you so much. And we'll have that all linked in the show notes as well. Thank you so much again for taking the time to be on and share your story with us. And I hope everyone has a great rest of their day and we'll talk to you guys next time. Yes. Thank you so much for having me.